Perimenopause with Lara Bryden. That is today's show. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 350. Thank you so much for tuning in from wherever you are in the world right now. I greatly appreciate your listenership. I adore showing up for you every single week with one of these shows and bringing you the different types of experts in all the things to do with low tox living, food, body, home, mind, planet, it all matters. And it's such an empowering thing when we build a literacy around how to move forward, whatever the challenge might be for us on a personal community or planetary level right now. So uh, today's show is with none other than Lara Bryden. We actually have her as our book club book for the next couple of months in the Low Tox Club. If you haven't heard of the club yet, it is a super low cost annual membership of $49 Australian. So that's about 30 US or Euro. And for that, you get 50% off all our courses, a wonderful chat group, get to attend our amazing member masterclasses with different authors, health professionals, scientists, uh, or helpers of things around sustainability, like growing veggies. Um, So many wonderful classes we've held for our members over the last few years. And of course you get access to all the archives. So you get to dive into over 30 interviews and and classes, about 20 different eBooks on all sorts of things from green finance choices to uh, cycle mapping. I mean, I could go on, uh, but I would love to see you there. So the Lotox Club is basically a place that we created to bring your Lotox life to life. A sounding board, a friend, a place to dive deeper into different subjects, a place to ask questions live in the masterclasses. It's super, super special. So you can head to the explore tab in the very first option at the on the lotoxlife.com website um, is join the club. And then you click there and have a read of the perks, see if you want to join us and uh, away we go. Now, today, I am really excited about this episode because perimenopause is something that uh, a huge (laughs) proportion of our community is currently in as a stage of life. And I think with Lara's decades of expertise on the subject, she has co-authored papers, she has written incredible books like the Period Repair Manual uh, for all ages and stages of period and cycle health, as well as the Hormone Repair Manual, more specifically for women moving through the stages of perimenopause into eventually graduating, love that word, menopause. Today, we talk about how it is not a health condition. It is not a disease process. It is a graduation. And uh, as all things that we head towards to graduate for, there are things that we can do along the way to make that a beautiful process or at least a way less intense one 
depending on a few things that we can move the needle on uh, from supplementation to hormone replacement to getting more rest uh, if you're not ready to hear that today's show is not for you um, but please listen so she unpacks everything with me. I ask a ton of questions and uh, I ask the questions as if someone had not read the hormone repair manual. So if you haven't, don't worry. You will feel like you're getting some great answers and then it'll probably be your logical next step to go check out that book because it really is, for me, a seminal work for women in that phase of life. Um, if you somehow have managed to be under a rock and not come across Lara Bryden's work, uh, then you can read peer-reviewed papers she has uh, been the lead author on. She has 20 years and more uh, of experience in women's health. Her consulting rooms are in Christchurch, New Zealand, if you're lucky enough to be there, where she treats women with PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause, and many other hormone and period-related health challenges. Uh, and as I mentioned her books, they are definitely books to make a part of your library. So I'll hook into that conversation in a little minute. I just want to remind you, we have our wonderful September sponsors. And in fact, uh, as we were talking about the nervous system today in the show, um, which we unpack, so it's basically a rewiring of the nervous system that is happening during this stage of life. And that's not something that's often talked about and yet critical to the importance of and successful navigation of this period in our lives. Uh, it made me think of one of our show sponsors of course nordic naturals is a sponsor on the show this month you have 15 percent off with the code lotox over at thera health uh, all the details are in the show notes of course but i wanted to dig into a couple of papers on um, brain health uh, and omega-3s and see where things were at there <laughs> i mean it's one of the most heavily researched nutrients uh, omega-3s and something that I read that was really interesting in terms of the stats on a shift uh, from how much omega-3 we were having a uh, hundred years ago compared to how much omega-6 and how the scales have literally tipped into the opposite situation seems to be in the research one of the key reasons and we've talked about this before uh, that people are experiencing more and earlier cognitive decline, uh, behavior, mood, and other brain disorders. So omega-3s are critical for brain development and for the prevention and treatment of behavior, mood, and other brain disorders. Uh, there was one paper I was reading, for example, on the higher intake of omega-3 fatty acids being associated with a decreased risk of a first clinical diagnosis of central nervous system demyelination. Uh, so we can think of some of the autoimmune processes that you might be more familiar with the word myelination, demyelination, like multiple sclerosis. Um, so omega-3 is hugely helpful to the nervous system because it helps inhibit neuronal cell death as well. So also, uh, there's a lowering of inflammation when we have a healthy amount of omega-3s. Uh, and so inflammation, as we know, affects brain function. Think of the neuroinflammation in biotoxin illness. Think of the neuroinflammation in an anxiety profile. 
omega-3s are super powerful. So if you want to try the Arctic Cod Liver Oil, it's a super easy liquid you can take. A little teaspoon a day is what uh, me and my son take, for example. At different times of mold illness, I was actually up to two, three teaspoons a day broken. This is not medical advice, of course, that's more of a practitioner dosage. But everyone, pretty much, check in with your doctor, especially if you're on thinners or if you've got a surgery coming up um, where um, uh, fish oils might be something that you would have recommend reduced just for that particular time or scenario. But otherwise, it's such a fantastic little piece of health insurance in that teaspoonful. And you've heard me talk all month about Nordic Naturals and their purity promise, the independent testing they do, not just on lead and mercury, but 210 other environmental contaminants to ensure a super pure product. And of course, the fish they start with, Arctic cod liver, uh, uh, sorry, Arctic cod, uh, sardines, small fish, right? So we're already lessening the up the food chain uh, bioaccumulation of, of toxins and heavy metals there as well. So thank you so much to Thera Health. Of course, we have our major sponsor, Oz Climate, still giving you 10% off with the code LOTOXLIFE. They're fantastic. Winix air purifiers and dehumidifiers. It's allergy season here in Australia. Now, of course, allergy season is something that's quite loaded in and of itself to say because you could be having gut issues or other immune dysregulation issues that are actually causing seasonal allergies in the first place. So that's, of course, something you want to be checking out. But if you want to reduce the pollen count as it rips through your home in the springtime, or if you're living somewhere close to wildfires, uh, or as I talked about in the show last week, backburning, uh, having a good Winix air purifier is just one of the most fantastic, especially if you have to prioritize, get the compact four stage just for your bedroom at the very least. Um, but they have a beautiful new five stage complete with pet filter. That's a very attractive unit. They've really worked hard with the design to make something that looks great in the home uh, that I'll pop in the show notes as well, because I think that's definitely one to look at um, if you're someone affected by allergies or you're living in a city where you have pollution counts quite high or near fires or agricultural chemicals, pretty much anyone in modern life with everything we got going on. It's a good health insurance policy. And then of course, lastly, Block Blue Light. Uh, if you haven't heard me rabbit on about the Sweet Dreams light bulbs, uh, they're awesome. We actually just moved recently and we've installed the little um, LED-like track that you can buy. Um, but it's completely blue light free. So it's that beautiful amber sweet dreams light bulb vibe, that golden vibe, and you can run them under your kitchen cabinets. So that when you have to pop into the kitchen late at night and you've had your glasses on maybe with the blue light blocking, and maybe you've got, you've invested in your light bulbs, then you have to flick on a bright kitchen light just before bed to take some magnesium or whatever. Uh, then that can undo all the goodness and your melatonin can get super confused and go, what? I thought I was supposed to show up and now it's really bright. What's going on? So um, I really love those new little track lights as well and we'll put those in the show notes. Uh, of course, a lot of people have been talking about how 15% helps with the red light panels and a reminder that Block Blue Light is international as an offer. You can get that 15% off internationally. And your code is LOTOXLIFE15 for that.
let's talk perimenopause and uh, get empowered because Lara's take on it and some of the things that came up in this conversation on the fly around empowerment, owning and, and cultivating a desire for and a non-negotiable around rest, uh, I think are things that a lot of women need to hear. Enjoy. Hello, Lara. How are you doing? Good. Nice to meet you, Alex. It's nice to meet you too. And this is the kind of question lineup that I'm like, okay, we can't solve the world of perimenopause <laughs> and menopause in an hour's conversation, but we can sure as heck bring some clarity. And the first question I really want to ask you is, I mean, there are so many parts of the body, so many conditions, so many ways of being, stages of life that can interest a practitioner. What was it for you to zero in on cycles and life stages for women as your specialization? It was from my patients. It was mm. the women who came to see me. It was just day after day, you know, week after week, treating PCOS, thyroid, endometriosis, and of course, perimenopause, menopause. In fact, when I started practicing as an naturopathic doctor at the young age of 27, mm. at least two thirds of my patients were menopause, like perimenopause. So, wow. I remember, so I've kind of come full circle. I remember at the time thinking, well, am I? should I, am I allowed to help women that are, you know, two decades older than me? Is that appropriate? But um, I think it was back then. And of course now I've had the lived experience myself. And, yeah. yeah. And uh, dare I ask, how was that for you? Yeah, you can totally <laughs> ask. Um, it was, I think, interestingly, I think I was more scared of it than I needed to be. So in my case, mm. it was easier than I expected. I think because I'd heard a lot of horror stories, as you can imagine. I did notice um, a reduced ability to cope with stress. Like and one of the things I talked with a friend about it, like I kind of lost my nerve a little bit for driving. Like I used to just, because I've lived all over the world. Like I've driven mm. in Toronto and well, Sydney, you live, live in Sydney and, and icy roads in Canada and just all kinds of conditions. And I just, for a few years there, I was like, just like a little, I was like, I'm going to take the back way and avoid <laughs> some of the tricky and tricky intersections. Oh, um, wow. Okay. That's that, a really interesting that, observation. Yeah. That, Im mm. that improved. And yeah, I mean, I did a lot of the things that I talk about in my book. I did that personally. So yeah. And I think, bad. and of course, yeah. You like yeah. have heard all of these stories. You have been helping women go through yeah. this. So that probably added to your, um, you're like, oh, shit, it's going to be me yeah. soon. <laughs> well, and I was able to recognize at yeah. 45, I was like, yeah. And then by 47, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is, I'm not imagining things like something's definitely happening. Um, whereas I think for a lot of women, that's been half the battle is just not understanding what's going on. Like, around mid 40s starting to feel like you're just going a little crazy or you know something else like anxieties just come on for some unknown reason it can be yeah just quite disorientating I think to not be able to sort of like put a name to it or understand what's happening but primarily with the nervous system because mm, I would argue this that is what I want to unpack is a neurological transition state so yeah it's as I talk about in my book, hormone repair manual, it's a recalibration of the nerve of every system, but as the brain and nervous system recalibrate, that can feel tough. Mm. 
Absolutely. And uh, I was speaking to Dr. Bill Rawls, uh, author of uh, uh, The Cellular Wellness Solution, and he talks about that conversation between the brain and the hormones starting to change. And yeah. like the brain is going, oh, crap, like what's going on down there? Like you guys aren't doing your job. I was like, oh, that is such a good explainer, Bill, as a 47-year-old yeah. woman. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, I think, I think, I would define perimenopause, the onset of perimenopause is the dropping away of progesterone because mm -hmm. progesterone is actually very important for the brain. Both hormones, both estrogen and progesterone are, but I think when the brain stops getting that nice progesterone feedback, it starts, yeah, destabilizing yeah. a little bit temporarily. Yeah. And, and so can we talk about the stages? Like, you know, yeah. you mentioned it, half of us are like, uh, am I, is this that? Yeah. Uh, what, yeah. What's actually clinically happening that we can keep an yeah. eye on maybe for the signs? So if we follow the the phases or the stages as defined by Professor Geraldine Pryor, who's a Canadian endocrinology professor who helped me with my books, she includes um, the earliest stage would be actually while well, periods are still regular. So mm. that's a little bit um, in, in opposition to some guidelines would define perimenopause, the onset is when periods start to either shorten or become a little less regular. But I, she argues, Professor Pryor argues, and I would agree that periods can still be regular when progesterone starts to drop away. So you start to have shorter luteal phases. If your audience knows what that means, maybe some cycles where you don't ovulate at all. So you don't make progesterone, you make less progesterone. And the results of that can be heavier flow. That's a pretty common um, feature early sign of um, perimenopause, breast pain, swollen breasts, um, increased, and then all the, and weight gain was another common one, and then all the neurological symptoms. So um, increased migraines, reduced ability to cope with stress, um, night sweats potentially worsened premenstrual mood, um, disturbed sleep. Just sleep might be the number one. I think of all mm. my, the symptoms out there, I think that, and I've talked to so many women who, especially if they were always good sleepers and then they suddenly they're like, wait, what, why am I popping awake at, you know, three in the morning? What's happening? That can be a sign. And just back to my own experience, because I was, I had sleep problems all my life. I never really, mm. I, my sleep actually improved with perimenopause because I, by then had so many all the, the procedures in place, like, you know, the magnesium and then getting morning light and everything. So it's yeah, not the same thing. no, of course. And, and so is it not the same, of course, for everybody because of the bio-individual nuances that we all have based on the lives we're living and yeah. our genetics and a whole bunch of other stuff? Um, it, it's So the way I frame it in the book, the slowing down and then stopping of our menstrual cycles should not inherently produce symptoms mm. like you know and our i make the case in the book that yeah. from an evolutionary biology perspective that would have been not only a pretty normal thing to do but potentially something that we evolved to do so mm. women you know essentially we evolved to have this post reproductive part of our lifespan and so we can infer, we, we can only sort of guess that for our ancestors, it was asymptomatic. Of course, we don't know that specifically. We do know that um, various people in the world, including the Hadza, who are a group of forager people in Tanzania who live quite a traditional lifestyle, they, they know about menopause. 
totally like they they know you know period stop fertility stops around 45 50 but they're happy about it and they mm. report no symptoms so arguably the symptoms that many of us do experience and i acknowledge that they're real is a situation of what's called evolutionary mismatch so it's just this normal transition life phase that we're meant to go through but given our modern food environment and environmental yeah. toxins play a role for sure and things like alcohol plays a role and circadian disruption and all these reasons why which should be a fairly seamless transition or recalibration as i call it is associated with symptoms and mm. fortunately there's you know those things we can do about about it um, yes that's it yeah. and it, in but, the book you say cycle while you can uh yeah. and for the people who haven't read the book I'm going to ask the question yeah do we have a choice oh well I meant mainly in terms of don't take the pill and suppress it ah so yes of, of course yes mm. yeah well I guess I say cycle it's a chapter about continue to have ovulatory natural menstrual cycles as long as you can for you so I mean I guess that would mean a not suppressing it mm. with the pill and then b addressing any other possible reason why you might not be ovulating so for example under eating is a common reason even into women's 40s um i had one patient who had been under eating most of her life never really had a period finally got her periods back in her early 40s and was like just over the moon and so i'm like great you can have like now you can have hopefully you know 10 years of cycles where you make hormones and get all the benefits of that so and of course there's other reasons why ovulation or cycling might stop so even in a woman's 40s i think it's worth figuring out what that is correcting it but in, in terms of answer to your question do we have a choice of when we stop ovulating because of perimenopause menopause no no we don't have a choice with mm. that i mean at least not at this point i mean i guess they're looking at future you know technologies maybe for future but at this point it's um inevitable Mm. But yeah, I, I mean, I take your point that there are certain things that you can do to promote the healthy balance of hormones that would then potentially prolong your cycling uh, if you were living a certain way. I always yeah, frame it as uh, promote healthy ovulation, which is mm. what creates the hormone balance, if you will. I don't really use the word balance very often, but yeah, basically it's all about being able to ovulate and make progesterone. That's the, that's the, the factory we want. <laughs> yeah, that's the goal. It's hard to do when we're young. Never mind as we get older, it can be harder because of thyroid and PCOS and insulin resistance and just all. Yeah, in my yeah. workshops, I always say we all know how hard it is to have a great cycle in the most perfect of scenarios. Never mind adding all the endocrine yeah. disruptors that we're exposed to yeah. in the modern world. Sure. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I want to ask what the biggest contributors are to having a really disruptive transition. Like if we were to pick the Mac Daddy, you really have to rein this in, sort this out, what are they for you? Yeah. Well, I might just start before we list some of the factors that we can change. Mm. I will just acknowledge some of them that we can't unfortunately that have already okay. happened do you like no I think that's yeah. a good idea so just to and just to sort of frame it as it's not always so if people are having a really rough transition it might you know might necessarily say anything they did wrong so genetics play a role for sure um epigenetics which have been 
as you probably know, is like just environmental toxin exposure and various things that happen to your ancestors. I mean, that can play a role. Um, my experience in the literature backs it, backs it up a little bit is that having spent a lot of time on hormonal birth control can make it the transition to perimenopause through perimenopause potentially harder. So that's a, another factor. Having um, a little red flag for suggesting that perimenopause might be a problem is having had a lot of premenstrual mood symptoms or postpartum mood symptoms. Those can be indications that there's a sort of a degree of uh, maybe hormone sensitivity that which means you might find the transition harder. And then in terms of um, lifestyle factors, um, well, actually, to just give another example of something that's already happened. It's in my book. There's this, this very interesting couple of papers suggesting that one of the driving factors of neurological symptoms during the menopause transition might be our historical previous exposure to lead. Mm. So... I'm 53. So when I was a kid, there was leaded petroleum. Like, yeah, I remember it too. Yeah. That was a thing. And there was lead in the houses. And so those of us born in the 60s and 70s were probably in, and earlier were exposed to more lead than hopefully people are today. But um, the lead is the body puts it in bones to try to just get rid of it. And with the natural increase in bone turnover that happens with the drop in estrogen, you can potentially get lead mobilizing so that's another example of something something that is not something we did wrong it's not our fault mm. that we were exposed to lead in the 70s well and I think um, we have to be really careful with the cultural uh underlying feeling that women always have that we're the guilty it, ones it's our exactly. fault what did I do I mean yeah, seriously we we've got that, enough to deal with <laughs> well that we did something wrong and yeah. the other factor that is just a reality and not anything we did wrong it's just our life cycle our life history is different like in the Hadza for example who I mentioned earlier like mm. in that kind of scenario it might be more like you know a woman spends a lot of time pregnant and breastfeeding through her life maybe has her last pregnancy around 40 42 you know breastfeeds for three years or something and just never gets a period back right so mm. it never kind of goes through I think in our modern world because we're not having as many babies which is totally fine we don't have to mimic what our ancestors did or what other people do but um by being in our by not having you know by not having as many children we're potentially having a lot more higher kind of let me just phrase it like more east more high estrogen cycles in our 40s which can set us up for a bigger fall the thing yeah about it's like you estrogen, notice it estrogen, more yeah yeah the hmm. big thing about estrogen is it's actually i think it's safe to say it's addictive for the brain mm. so and um our 40s can be a time of very high estrogen it's when the brain starts to kind of lose it lose the reins on the ovaries they just start pumping out up to three times more estrogen than in our 20s or 30s so that's a lot for the brain and if you're exposed to a lot of that especially without progesterone to kind of counterbalance it when estrogen then does start to drop that can be like going over a cliff like that can be really tough so um, just yeah, to frame that all as things we that are outside of our control, things that are, are inside our control. Top one I'd say is alcohol. I would mm. say just wave goodbye to it. Yeah, it's, it's just not. It's just not 
our friend. Not helpful. Arguably, mm-hmm. arguably never is, but during this time, it's almost, I mean, I'm sure maybe there are exceptions out there, but every patient, every friend, every person I've talked to has the same experience. When you get rid of alcohol, you can dramatically improve sleep and hot flushes and night sweats. And it's um, fairly predictable. So, and it makes sense. I mean, alcohol is not something we were evolved to have or no have or no one has brain, an alcohol deficiency <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah some people I think we can get away with it at certain phases in our life maybe a bit more get away with moderate intake but not during our 40s mm, and then I've noticed the that next, too yeah the next thing would be moving the body the brain loves the body to move it's mm. just all different um, there's all different biochemical th- reasons for that, but it's just one of the best ways to feel better. It doesn't have to be going to the gym. It could just be going for a big walk. In fact, being outside is also great because you get the light to help stabilize the circadian rhythm. One of the things that happens with perimenopause is a disruption of the circadian rhythm. So you can feel a bit jet lagged all the time. Yeah. Um, so those are my top three. And then of course, you know, from my book, I really love magnesium plus taurine and in Australia, we have like just some amazing supplements, powders that have those two nutrients together, plus some other various accessory nutrients, depending on the formula. So that, that can be very helpful. And my clinical observation, and I haven't tracked this with data, but I would say, you know, of the women who are just having, you know, night sweats and a bit of sleep disturbance, if, if they do those things that I've just listed, including magnesium plus taurine, at least 50% of the time, that's all that's required. Like I've had multiple patients say, oh, I'm good now. Like, you know, I've got, I've done those things. I've got magnesium. I, f- I feel fine. So yeah. and they might not even need some of the fancier treatments, including hormone treatments, but hormone treatments, of course, can be helpful. And we can talk about that. Yeah. I wouldn't mind unpacking that now, seeing as we're there because yeah. it's shrouded in a lot of fear from past messaging around it, um, synthetic versus bioidentical, natural, there's a lot of terms that people are confused about. And I think speaking to a lot of women in our community, there's a sense of disempowerment because you don't like there's you don't want to do the wrong thing, right? And you certainly don't want to increase your chances of anything bad happening, but you feel crap and you'd really love some help if you're in that yeah. category. So what what are the options and what is now considered clinically safe in the research? Right. So modern hormone therapy is quite safe, as you're probably aware. In fact, I gave, I mentioned alcohol a few minutes ago. I'll just say one other thing about it. Even moderate alcohol intake, which would be, you know, one or at the most two drinks per day, increases the risk of breast cancer more than modern hormone therapy does. So mm, great context. Very good. Kind of, kind of puts it in perspective. It's not like there's, I would say it's not like there's no risk from estrogen therapy there's this i would i mean as you know the the data is always kind of shifting and various opinions i i suspect there is a tiny risk small risk but um which is why you know women with a history of breast cancer are still encouraged you know advised to not take estrogen but it's pretty small and so in answer to your question of bioidentical natural here's the thing Welcome to the modern world, everyone. So the conventional hormone therapy today is mostly body identical or bioidentical or natural, not mm. in- exclusively. Like there are still a few progestins kicking around. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
a standard prescription, for example, would be an estradiol estrogen patch and in Australia, Prometrium or in New Zealand, Eutrogestin. And those are natural progesterone. That's natural progesterone. And the reason yeah. that became standard is because it's safer for the breasts. Mm. In fact, it's probably, if it may even reduce the risk of breast cancer, which is quite intriguing. But just to put it in context, because uh, I've been practicing a long time, more than 25 years, even, even 10, maybe definitely 15 years ago um, in Australia and other places, women had to fight to get natural progesterone. Like the same prometrium, mm. or the same hormone that is now the standard because it's safer and better and gentler and nicer and helps with sleep and all the things was alternative. And you had to seek it out with a naturopathic doctor or integrative doctor and get it compounded. Mm. And th the fact that that was available back then, and I, that was my pretty much work for a big part of my career was helping women transition onto bioidentical or body identical hormones before they became standard conventional treatments. Um, so I was, I'm very happy that it's become mainstream. I didn't yeah. think it would take this long, but it did. <laughs> Welcome it to Women's Health. <laughs> yeah, it took a few decades. But the thing is, and I describe in Hormone Repair Manual, you really just have to ask for it by brand name at this stage. Mm. Don't, I know it's a little cheeky, but like, don't say bioidentical to the doctor because they don't, well, depending on the doctor, they don't really know what that is or want to talk about it in those terms. They just really know certain brands that are safer and so just products yeah just name just name them and say mm. that's what you want and don't even don't even use the word natural or anything like that but i mean just to be clear for anyone who's not understanding what i'm saying bioidentical or body identical refers to hormones any kind of hormone whether it's estradiol progesterone or other hormones that are exactly molecularly identical to human estradiol and progesterone mm. which is not what they used to give at all like mm. even 10 even 15 years ago they used to give very different molecules um that's still by the way what's given in hormonal birth control is not to be clear not body identical or bioidentical so young women are still being given synthetic well i, I hate i hesitate to use the word synthetic because even the body identical hormones are technically synthetic they're made yeah. in the lab but the difference is that they are a molecule that the body recognizes and that fits mm. like a key in all the right locks like does all the right things that hormones are supposed to do and and so when are we looking at ah that is the natural next step for right. the hormones yeah well i guess because it's not going to be have... all women, right, who are going no. to need it. And wh when do we know we do need? Yes. Well, this is an evolving question. Mm. And in fact, as you may know, there are some experts and sort of narratives out there that suggest that all women need estrogen. I, I don't, I, I, um, I think it's fine to take estrogen therapy. I don't think all women need it. I, I guess the... The way it's sort of framed currently is I think women need it for symptoms, potentially. So if mm. symptoms are strong and if they haven't, for example, responded to the things I mentioned earlier, like the no alcohol, the magnesium taurine, the moving your body, going outside, if that hasn't been enough and maybe you've, whatever else you've tried and you just sort of want to try the next step, then symptoms, including sleep disturbance, mood, 
hot flushes, those are, that's a, a, you know, a, a very valid indication to try either progesterone on its own, which is, that's a little bit, you know, alternative approach I have, or progesterone plus estrogen together. I mean, the other indications for estrogen therapy for sure is early menopause or surgical menopause where the ovaries are removed or you know, mm. other medical scenarios when most, I'd say almost all experts agree that estrogen therapy should definitely be given. Um, the other indication, official indication is for osteoporosis or mm -hmm. yeah, sort of, um, estrogen, both estrogen and progesterone are really good for bone health. So, and I would argue they're better than some of the other medications for bones. Of course, but there's lots of ways to improve bone health, but but for a woman who went through a natural menopause, you know, 50 something period stopped and she's feeling really great and she's, you know, strong and has, you know, good muscles and health is sleeping. And then I would, you know, no indication of osteoporosis that I would say, I think most experts would agree at this point, she doesn't she doesn't need it. There's no yeah. indication currently for like using it as some kind of prevention. Yeah. Oh, you're at this testing. stage of life now. So it's time no. to take the hormones. Yeah. No, no, no. It's mm. not like that. No, no. Um, yeah. It's, it's on a case by case basis. And to be fair, the research is always changing. So there might be new information coming that will, you know, modify some of that, but we are definitely in a, the pendulum has swung. And at least in some parts of the world, we're definitely in this sort of mode of almost framing menopause as a like a condition I yes guess, i know i was gonna ask you about is, that yeah that is incorrect from a scientific perspective biological evolutionary everything perspective that is incorrect um mm. menopause is a natural life phase that we probably evolved to do i the, the thing i the statement that irks me the most is this sort of assertion or narrative that menopause is an accident of living too long that is incorrect mm. um there have long been women who if they were lucky enough to survive all the hazards of you know being a child being yeah. you know infection and injury and childbirth and all the things that existed all the hazards that existed before modern medicine if if she got through all of that then she lived to 70 or 80 just as we do today we know that from the archaeological record now so and if you and think about that time in life yeah. after being able to make the babies yourself, I mean, the amount of data on different cultures and health in the older age yeah. groups, if you're caring for grandkids and, yeah. you know, that intergenerational support network makes yeah. a lot of sense evolutionarily. 100%. Yeah. And so in my, in my you, you would have noticed in my book, Hormone Repair Manual, I, mm. I, I reference a book called the slow moon climbs where she builds the case that um possibly um positive selection pressure for or like you know the fact that a post-reproductive lifespan in women like a few decades spent post-reproductive was why led to the evolution of a longer human lifespan mm. in humans generally in both sexes like it, it's just was that important to have women in their 50s 60s and 70s not making their own babies but looking after everybody else and so yeah I just it really reframes menopause as something we're meant to do and to, and I guess the other thing to mention is women outlive men in every country. yeah so it, I mean that kind of debunks the idea that you know it's a menopause is a deficiency state because it's not true 
No, it's a it's a stage. Uh, and and just to round out the conversation about introducing hormone therapy potentially mm-hmm. or not, um, yep. do we wait until the period is completely gone to have that discussion? No. I was going to say, I mean, I know you talk about this, but um, in terms of testing then, what, what would we be testing for? What kinds of tests would we do to decide on the therapy dosages? Yeah, it's, it's as frustrating as it is. There's no blood test for perimenopause. No, there is not. It would be so great if it would be so great if there was. <laughs> I mean, the testing there is is to rule out other explanations, right? Mm. Like rule out that it's a thyroid problem or there's something because you might because just any. It's not like any health problem you get in your forties is automatically perimenopause. Like it could be something else. So Mm. I think testing, it can be important for that reason, but no, you don't want to wait. If you're really suffering or if you feel like you you want treatment, you need treatment in your forties potentially before the final period, because what the research seems to suggest within a few years after the final period, it's kind of all over. Like you feel a lot, most of them will feel a lot better, at least in terms of the neurological symptoms, there can still be, um, you know, vaginal dryness and that whole set of symptoms, which is a little different and super fun little side thing. Yeah. That that always, (laughs) and I'll just, I'll just say, I'm a huge fan of vaginal estrogen, Mm -hmm. like, and it's very safe. And so that's kind of a, that will be potentially something that can last lifelong, but the neurological symptoms are temporary. And if you wait till after the final period, you may have just missed, you may have just like missed the time when you most needed help. So Mm. This is where I can think there can be a place for both estrogen and progesterone while still cycling, but there's definitely a place for potentially progesterone therapy. Um, the We could put this in the show notes, but Professor Cryer, who I've mentioned a few times, she finally was published her um, clinical trial of uh, progesterone, so Prometrium, for perimenopausal hot flushes, night sweats, and sleep. And so that's really good to have that in the literature because that's actually the first strangely enough that's actually the first um bit of research around using hormone therapy of any kind for those perimenopause years while you're still cycling mm-hmm. periods and yeah. are you a fan of urinary hormone testing um i don't use it mainly mm. because it's just my experience, and again, and again, this people, I'm sure lots of people listening won't agree, but my experience is it's a lot of numbers mm. that I don't know what to do with. Like, or you know, something the patient doesn't know what to do with. It's a lot of um because here's the thing, you know, estrogen is bouncing all over the place, like yeah. it's soaring up to three times higher than normal, it's crashing down again. So, and is that happening on that, any given day as well? So well, it's happening throughout the argue, cycle. Yeah, throughout, of course. Throughout the cycle. There is some hmm. variation even within hours, but certainly it's happening throughout the cycle. And so, you know, detecting that, that estrogen has gone really high, I'm not sure how much value there is in having that number versus just having like breast pain and super heavy periods and you know that estrogen has gone high. Um, progesterone, picking up the progesterone is low. Likewise, mm. it's not that helpful because by definition, that's really what perimenopause is. We expect it to be mm. low. And weirdly, I don't know what, I don't know how to sort of connect all the, but like I've seen some uh, urinary tests where progesterone was 
um, higher than I expected. And I don't, I don't quite know what to make about that. And again, is having a um, even a 24 hour progesterone rating is not enough because what you need is um, what you want is like the progesterone dose throughout the whole month. So you need mm. to know if you've got um, a, like a robust 11 day luteal phase. You know what I think is helpful potentially is temperature tracking. Mm, so then I was going to ask about people, that. Yeah, yeah. So that I think not everyone's going to do that. And lots of my patients don't do that. If they're not, if, if you're not already in the habit of tracking your ovulations and cycles with temperatures, it might be perimenopause might be a frustrating time to start that. But if you're mm. used to that and you've been doing it and then you can start to see uh, almost certainly shorter luteal phases, so shorter times after ovulation, between ovulation and the period, cycles where you don't ovulate at all, and that will demonstrate quite clearly perimenopause because if you're not seeing that then it's not perimenopause but kind mm. of what i said earlier like i think perimenopause is defined essentially by the dropping away of progesterone yeah and i have to say it's not a sponsored mention but the aura ring has definitely made right. that just so easy right. to go oh okay that's what's go- oh okay it's fallen off the cliff today okay come on period yeah. where are you yeah it's- good point yeah a lot of the wearable devices now will track temperatures for you and mm. give you that data so that's um yeah good point yeah really handy um and okay so in terms of uh going off symptoms to then decide on whether you're going to require or you know want to try um those estrogens and progesterones either or or both um how do we then go about really tuning into what would then work for that individual okay. dosage timing yeah, I mean, we won't be able to go into all the details. No, of course, but stroke, like some of the things strokes. that you go, whoa, that was a really bad idea to do three okay. pumps kind of thing. Okay, yeah. so broad strokes <laughs> in the early phases of mm. perimenopause is a time of usually quite frequent periods, heavy periods, breast pain, that all signifies high estrogen, right? Like that's high estrogen. Those symptoms are high estrogen. Mm. Um, that would be a time for progesterone alone. I would yeah. argue, as per the new clinical trial that I just mentioned, newly published clinical trial. And then later in perimenopause, especially, for example, during phase four, which is the waiting room, when you've had what you think might be your last period and you just haven't had a, you just haven't had a period, you're waiting to see if you like achieve 12 months without a period and yeah. graduate to menopause. That's obviously, that's going to be time of low estrogen. I mean, that might be a time you start to notice some vaginal dryness. That would be a pretty classic sign of lower estrogen. Your body's trying to adapt to that, but definitely if there are kind of mood symptoms and around that time, that would be the time to consider both estrogen and progesterone. And mm. I usually say with estrogen, start lower. I know different doctors have different opinions, but I would say start, start lower and maybe work up if you need to. But just as a broad guideline like a starting place might be like you know the the prometrium 100 milligrams it's a standard dose and the easter 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 patch comes in 25 50 75 or 100 but like you can start with 25 mm. really depending on um the severity of symptoms and give it a while like give it a you know a few weeks to see what relief you can get before going high because one thing i have observed and i've seen it in literature too paradoxically you can get symptoms you can get symptoms from 
estrogen being too low, I guess, you know, adapt, trying to adapt to that low estrogen. And you can also get symptoms, quite similar symptoms from being on too high, too much estrogen. Mm. And so then you've sort of potentially missed your window where there would have been the right dose. Yeah. So it's something to continually be just feeding back and saying, this is what I'm noticing. Maybe yeah. if you find it hard or if you're a busy individual, little quick diary entry, so it forces you to focus every day. Well, and the other thing too, especially depending on what phase you're in, if you're still having the occasional period, just know that when your period comes back, your own estrogen comes roaring back. Like you could just swing all the way back into high estrogen, at which point that patch is probably not doing much. Like it's just mm. like a, <laughs> it's a little afterthought. It's, <laughs> yeah, compared to your, how much estrogen you're pumping out yourself. So, mm. and then when that goes, then, so my patients sometimes say, oh, I suddenly feel a lot better in terms of, you know, hot flushes and a few other things. I'm like, and then they get a period. I'm like, well, that's your own estrogen just kicked in. But um, then of course that will go again as you head into another few months or however long it is without a period. So just, yeah, just being being aware that as long as you're having periods occasionally, and that's true even if you've had a hysterectomy, which can be confusing, but if you've had your uterus out, but you still have your ovaries, you could still be having cycles and making at times very little estrogen and then swinging back to making lots. So you're then, you have to factor that into what you're feeling. It's not just what you're taking, right? That's mm. affecting you. It's your own hormones that are affecting how you feel. Yeah. And so you've talked about the nervous system a couple of times, and I really don't want us to finish without unpacking that a little bit more in terms of uh, like it, it's almost feels like there's a danger response, like, <laughs> whoa, there's changes, yeah. what's going on? Um, how important is it for us to focus on the nervous system? Um, you know, we talk about rewiring the brain, for example, yeah. in the book. Um, what does that actually look like for, yeah. for a woman? Because it's like well, this convergence of most people, well, many people have teenagers in the mix, aging parents, height of career, like there's a lot going on that could push your nervous system to the edge as it is at this age um, I know. for and the modern sadly, woman. Sadly, unfortunately, it's just the reality. There's no other way to say it. The time what you're, that you're describing where you're most busy and mm. least able in some ways to take the rest that you need, get mm. the rest that you need, is actually the time when you most need it because this brain recalibration or brain rewiring as I call it is also um so it's a can that can create symptoms as that recalibration is happening but it's also a tipping point for brain health by which I mean it's a kind of a critical window like it's it's as things are in flux and changing if you do to possibly just work overload or just whatever it is like combination of stresses on the immune system on the nervous system if that's just too much, you're you're not going to be able to find your new equilibrium, healthy equilibrium coming out the other side, right? Like that's when women are potentially at risk for being pushed down kind of a more permanent path of mood disturbance or mm. even arguably, and I don't say this to scare people, but like down the road to insulin, to um, dementia potentially. So there is a turning point at menopause where brain symptoms can start not for everyone, like long lasting brain symptoms can start, cognitive issues can start then. But conversely, if you're able to just kind of recalibrate and navigate that and stay pretty healthy, you can pop out the other side and you're 
brain is good. So it is a time to do as much as you can to support the nervous system. And if possible, well, myself, I mean, it was possible in my case, I just decided to work less for a while, like just mm. dial down my schedule. Um, it means less money for many of us if you do that. And I get that there's mortgages and things, but one way to think about it is as an investment in the future. Like yeah, if you schedule a bit of bit less work now, if you can, it might mean you can keep working for much longer decades. Mm. Yeah. Whereas if you, if you head into burnout or, you know, chronic mood issues, or you, mm. you may just not be able to work. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to know, have a crystal ball and what the future will bring, but I do think it's, if there was ever a time to either slow down or just <laughs> self-care, you know, perimenopause is the time. So make time to get outside, make time to rest, make time to sleep, make time to move the body, get off alcohol for sure. And um, yeah, just, I mean, that's a, those are reason, some reasonable things you can do to stabilize your nervous system. Yeah. And I, I think, say, I, might, yeah. I know, like, yeah, I, I think one of the things that uh, can be tricky is, or no, one of the things that's an opportunity is to actually reframe how we spend time and connect with people as well. Because in your 20s and 30s, that might have been big ruckus dinner parties and there might have been a few bottles of wine at the table or you might have been going out for cocktails or, you know, and no judgment at all. I was right there with you guys. But um, I have found one of the most powerful things to do is I'm catching up with a friend. We're making that a beautiful cliff walk over Vaucluse yeah. or we're making that a really lovely sit in the sand on the beach with our coffees and just look out at the ocean. Yeah. And so you're still getting that beautiful jazzed up connection yeah. vibe, but you're doing it in a new context that nourishes a part of you that you otherwise wouldn't be able to slot in extra time to do on top of all the things. Agree. Well, you know, I'm a I'm a pretty passionate walker, so I'm always mm-hmm. a friend. Even just as a group of friends on a group message tonight, they're like, "Should we meet for this? Should we meet for this?" I'm like, "Well, maybe we could go for a walk." Yeah, I do. Too. <laughs> Why <laughs> do we go for a walk? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and I yeah. still have a couple of girlfriends who are uh, uh, stuck in the land of, "Oh, we deserve a drink." You know, this has been such a tough week, and that's for them to lead their path and and find out when uh, that might change for them. So I definitely don't. Uh, I'm not a preacher, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, you know what I really feel like I need though? I just want to go down to Bondi and just see the ocean. So if you don't mind, we do a breakfast instead and then walk along the promenade. That'd be amazing. And no one ever says, yeah, nah. Like everyone's always like, what a great idea. So I think if it's an invitation and a gift and something fun to do together, that you can tick the nourishment box with the nervous system box with as well. That's the, that's the golden ticket for our age group. Yeah. And for everyone feeling sad about wine, I'll just say <laughs> for what it's worth. Um, I'm I sure there's someone going, what about the blue zones out there? I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so just as a clinical observation for what mm. it's worth, when women do graduate to menopause or post-menopause or come out the other side. I love graduation as a word, by the yeah, way. Thank you for lovely, that. Yeah. yeah. You just get into this mm. new stable life phase. Mm-hmm. They can usually have the odd glass of wine and it doesn't 
affect them the way it does in our 40s. So just to remind people, we're talking about this transition period. And it's during this recalibration or transition period that I'm saying alcohol is just so unfriendly to the process. Mm. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's, well, it does not mean that's how you're always going to be in any regard. And that's not how you're always going to be with regard to alcohol either. So I've, I've personally brought back the occasional beer, like, and I actually, it used to really affect my sleep. And now it doesn't because I'm a couple of years, yeah into menopause into postmenopause. Oh well that is lovely to know. Thank you for telling yeah. us from the other side. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I tell yeah. you what, like last night it was one of my dearest, dearest friends' birthdays. I just had mineral water and I'm fine with that. It was a super special yeah. night. I hardly ever drink anymore. But uh, if I do have my birthday champagne, I pay for it in palpitations till three in the morning and it is awful. So it's just not even worth it for me. Right. So that won't that won't continue. Um, mm. so Ooh, from the other you. side of 54, <laughs> mm. wherever, wherever your last period is going to be uh, a couple of years after that, it's you. Yeah. And I don't want to make it sound like, a, you know, I'm saying alcohol <laughs> is fine, but like for people who would, who would like to have the occasional drink and not pay the price, that's the reward for getting out the other side. <laughs> well, I just feel like this whole podcast is like <laughs> leading me to this super special yeah. moment where I could enjoy my birthday champagne because I'm French, yeah. you know, and I really do love a lovely glass of something and it would be a handful of times a year, you'll, but it really upsets me that I can't even do that. Yeah. So I'll back to it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm sure there are some relieved people out there as well. <laughs> now, I want to talk about empowerment because, and and I, I love that you brought up uh, the idea that, or the quite um, damaging idea that menopause is a condition because it is absolutely not. And I love the word graduation that you use as yeah. well. And I think you play such a powerful role for women around the world with your books in, in empowerment um, of simply being a woman and moving through the phases of life. And I want to tell you a a quick story about a competition that I ran once for a wonderful organic coffee brand. And all you had to do to win your lifetime supply, you know, your year's supply of this lovely coffee was just share the moment that you really enjoy having your coffee in the morning if you're a coffee drinker. Um, And they have a decaf. That's what I like from their range. And there were 400 women who entered there were 398 women who used language like sneak and steal. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. I think for me this is a study in itself and it gives me yeah, goosebumps every time I tell that story. Yeah. Um, I have ADHD so I can always thank myself for pattern recognition because I was looking at it and going, hold yeah. on, this data is fascinating and yeah, uh, yeah. and then terrifying that we have this five, 10 minute beverage. And that's something we don't even just deserve to own as a little piece of time in our day was frightening to me. And so I feel like these stages we move through as women, there's this underlying cultural disempowerment of ownership of what we are doing, what we are in, what we need to successfully Uh, uh, feel grounded in ourselves as women. And I think perimenopause can then be this ultra destabilizing time and you're inviting us for it to perhaps not be uh, and some advice around that and and what you feel in even hearing that. 
Yes, that's quite an interesting observation. I have a few thoughts about coffee, but first mm. I'll just say, yeah, we, we, I think as women, as women, yeah. we do like have this litany of like, oh, what did I do wrong? It must be something I, we, we do blame ourselves for. We do. Everything. And that, that's yeah. why I prefaced earlier, like a lot of it's not within our control. Like some mm. of it has just happened before we were born or it's in our genes or epigenetics. So um, that's okay to just kind of acknowledge that and still recognize the, um, the few things we can do or that we're going to get the most benefit from. That's why I've tried to prioritize some of the things today. Now I actually love coffee. So I don't, in my book and most of my writing, I do try to address this um, in, like unfair pairing of coffee and alcohol. So like, this, is, this comes to my patients. I don't know if people mm. generally, but a lot I of completely say, agree. It's an unfair pairing. Like, they're like, mm. I, I gave up coffee and alcohol as a, duo mm. and I'm like hmm, okay well like obviously I think you should give up alcohol especially during the 40s and then the, then they might say something like oh but I missed coffee so I brought them both back it's like they, yeah they don't have to stay <laughs> <laughs> they're not like joined at the hip they're like not that. a couple like, they're, yeah they're, they're separate things they mm. have very separate different effects alcohol we've talked about it's it has almost yeah. no redeeming qualities apart from it's very lovely and nice and we can get back to the point where we might be able to tolerate it better than we can in our 40s but coffee is a little more complicated in that it's arguably beneficial for the brain um people really vary in genetically in terms of how well and quickly they metabolize caffeine so certainly there are people out there for whom coffee is not they don't feel good on it and that if that's you like listening you know if that if that's your situation then yeah don't force yourself to have it um mm. And also some people get kind of an immune reaction, negative immune reaction to coffee. And so I'm just acknowledging the reality of that, but that doesn't mean everybody does. And I would say, and it's dose dependent too. So I think, yeah. and, and a good quality coffee, like a cup or two in the morning, honestly is fine. Like mm. I've never, I've never worried about that with my patients. If they're if sleep is really a problem, then I would definitely think, you know, pay attention to how the volume, like the quantity, the number of cups, and certainly how late in the day you're having it, because caffeine can disturb sleep for sure. But yeah, I think of coffee as a joyful thing. One of my friends described it, I, was, I, I did agree with her. She's like, sometimes when I'm going to sleep, I'm so looking forward to my morning coffee that I'm like too, <laughs> excited, that. too excited to get to sleep. Like <laughs> just like Christmas the next morning, knowing that there's going to be this like, you know, kind of rich, bitter yeah so I I enjoy it I either um, have coffee while I'm writing my journal or currently I'm in Canada visiting my parents so I have coffee with them and we have coffee mm. and look at the you know animals on the hills that just kind of plot out the day and think about life and yeah it can be quite a nice ritual so Definitely mm. not something to sneak. No, 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 no. No, definitely not. And advice then for women around not feeling like you deserve to take that walk in nature or, you know, how mm. on earth have I got time to look after my nervous system when I do have this big to-do list uh, for the kids, for my parents, for the all the things going on at work. Um, even if you don't have kids, life is incredibly busy for a lot of career women at that age. Uh yeah it's what do you think it's going to take for women to actually feel comfortable to just go yeah I'm checking out for the afternoon actually uh, I really need this and to feel 100% okay with that well you could I mean certainly there's 
this what you said there about deserving it and this feeling mm. that we're worthy and mm-hmm. and some women certainly some of us you know very people pleasing and sort of almost yeah. worth from by putting other people ahead of ourselves and that that's that can only go on for so long right because that's very depleting so I mean I guess it's about that's and that's gonna be different for everyone grappling with that sense of worthiness and what you deserve but from even from a more just purely practical sense looking at your whole life it's kind of what I said earlier like it's an investment mm. in future so if you uh, yeah rest that's up a good now, frame yeah if you rest up now you'll have more energy for work if that's your priority or you'll definitely have more energy for your kids if that's a priority I'm sure well I've heard you know from in lots of cases I'm sure the kids would prefer take some rests but then when you do spend time with them you you're more engaged like you feel better you feel happier rather than just mm. feeling like you have to be with them all the time like they they can handle depending on you know their age obviously they can handle you going off and having some rest time yeah hopefully there's someone else around to help you do that and you know take the kids and yeah yeah and I think it's about broadening our villages again you know the nucleus family doesn't work for anyone's nervous system um, no. <laughs> in terms of no. it all ending up relying on but largely still women, if you look at the housework data, for example, even if they have careers as well, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. Uh, and there are a lot of, there's a, there's a trend towards, and I, I mean not to offend anyone in this space because I think there's some incredible work being done to help talk about the nervous system, the importance of nervous system health and what it looks like when it's dysregulated, when it looks like we've moved past fight, flight and into fawn. And I think it's really um, special that we live in a time that we have the language now to go and reflect and think, oh, yeah, no, this is not good right now for me. But the productization, it's like a hyper productization of nervous system health. Like I need to do a course to balance my nervous system or I need, you know, and, you know, I I mean, I love some of these course providers. They are friends and they're doing great work. But I also worry, especially in this, um, dare I say, cost of living chapter where there's a heightened awareness around food prices going up because of wars and global markets, you know, it doesn't all have to cost something to work on nervous system health. No, a lot of it comes down to rest, scheduling time Mm. for rest, which is just the precious, precious downtime. There's no, I've said that to my patients too, there's no, like, trust me, there's no supplement you can take that can make up for lack of rest, like Mm. lack of downtime. It's just not possible. And another way, I guess, to frame it, depending on the person, if you've ever sort of looked after an animal because I'm a biologist I always think we're biological creatures like that is just a fact like you would never look at a horse or a dog and you know an animal (laughs) that you're looking after and or a child for that matter you'd never think you know what they don't need to sleep they don't need to (laughs) I'm just gonna like make them like pace around and I'm gonna keep poking them I'm not gonna let them rest and you know like and just think that and somehow think they're gonna be fine with that like we know intuitively we know for animals and children that what they need like it's Mm. non-negotiable they need they need to eat at certain times. They need to rest. They need to sleep. They need to be warm. You know, they need all the things. Mm. And that's true for us too. So, oh, it really yeah, it doesn't is. Have to, doesn't have to cost anything, but it can cost in terms of lost work time. That's probably the biggest one. That and is, yeah. 
and something has to give, right? Like I've had conversations with patients where I'm looking at their, what they've described in their commute and their housework and their 50 hours a week and the driving the kids to school. And I'm like, I'm like on paper, I'm like, this doesn't add up. Like this is mm. not functioning. Like I can see on paper, like, and I probably don't even only know half the story. Like this is not. It's a fail on the math test. Yeah. Yeah. Like mm. it's just that there's no room for, that's just not going to work at mm. all. So this adds up to more than a hundred. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly mm. like that. Like there's no wiggle room. So Mm-mm. that's when you either get a house. I mean, I'm just throwing ideas out there. I mean, if you can afford it, you get a house cleaner or someone you know to help with the kids or you get, or you negotiate lower work hours, something, or you get someone else coming in to help. Like if something has to happen. Yeah. I, we rescued a, a giant dog last year, golden retriever. Um, and, uh, and he has actually taught me about rest. It's actually been a really, I'm just, because I I started to realize I was actually feeling jealous of my dog. Just calm down sleeping. What is going on? Why am I so deeply jealous of Buddy? (laughs) So I actually had to do the work to unpack that. And I think, I think it was genuinely because uh, he would just meet his needs and then check out. And yeah. not feel guilty about that. And no. and so he actually became a bit of an idol for me uh, and and a teacher. And I think, you know, as a biologist, you totally get this, yeah. that, that knowing more about and being more connected to other beings and observing yeah. how they balance themselves, I yeah. think we can learn a lot from that because of the construct of modern human life. Uh, as a completely yeah, tend, artificial built we tend to think yeah reality. we think we're exempt from all these biological mm. rules which were mm. no, it's, it's funny you talk about being jealous of your dog because I did a, <laughs> a few years ago I did a little it's just like kind of like a meditation exercise where you think about the different parts of yourself like kind of like a parts and I, I identified the part of myself who felt like she wasn't getting enough attention was my inner cat like I was just imagining like you know how cats okay just, like, yeah, yeah. Out, and they're just like they don't care. They're like, so they unapologetic. Care. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, mm. I'm just taking up space. I'm going to stretch out and just sleep the afternoon and, and not, yeah, as you say, not apologizing for it. Mm. So I'm still working on that. Actually, I'm not as, as quite as chill as a cat. I don't think any human can be, but I'm trying to channel some of that. Yeah. A good thing to do. Well, Lara, thank you yeah. so much. Such a wonderful. Yeah. Uh, deep dive into the many things people can learn from the book. And, and I think there's so much in there and so much detail. So let this be the start of that exploration for the people yeah. listening. Um, we all thank you for your work. You've just done such amazing Aww. work for women's health. Uh, so many of, of the people in our membership were so excited. I was talking to you. They're like, oh, my gosh, you're talking to Lara. So know that you have a ton of fans out there and we love what you're doing. Well, and I'm I'm kind of from Sydney. I don't know if people know that. I guess I, I mentioned it in my book. I lived there for a long time, even though I'm Canadian and now live in New Zealand, but I feel very, um, just talking to you today and hearing about Bondi and Sydney and the different places. I'm like, yeah, that's my old stomping ground. Your old stomping ground. Well, yeah. it's a beautiful place to live, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm right by the Botanical Gardens, which is gorgeous. Love. Yeah. That is gorgeous. Mm. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was really great to meet you. And thanks for um, picking my book for your uh, September. Yeah, we're loving yeah. it. 
And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.